0: From training
1: to performing, join our big league conversation.
0: Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy.
1: Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 90. Today's guest is a really bright clinician who's had a profound influence on the health and human performance communities over the past 10 to 15 years in particular. And I think it's a really important podcast for folks to listen to in the baseball community, not just on the sports medicine side of things, not just on the strength and conditioning side of things, but also for players, parents, and coaches to really start to appreciate that asymmetry may in fact be a very normal finding in a baseball population. And he's gonna give us some insights on how to appreciate it and how to manage it. So really good episode coming in from a really intelligent guy that I think will share some great insights for everybody. If you're a baseball pitcher, you know that keeping your arm healthy is essential. But with high training volumes on top of participation in games, that's not always easy. Overuse is a significant problem for players at every level of competition right now. Certainly, we see elbow and shoulder injuries as some of the most common overuse injuries in baseball. At the professional level, an ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow injury can result in an average of 17.2 months out of competition. For youth players, overuse is also a predominant injury mechanism of injury. If you miss out on that much time, you're also missing out on a lot of development. So really, at the end of the day, there are three ways we can combat overuse. First, you can reduce workload. And certainly, there have been a lot of research studies out there on pitch counts. Second, and the theme of this podcast, is that you can build a significant level of fitness to prepare yourself. However, a third key approach that's often overlooked is that you can work to improve your recovery so that you can safely display the fitness that you built day in and day out. And that's really where Mark Pro is an effective tool. Some athletes will even use it to warm up their arms before they throw. Mark Pro is a cutting edge EMS device that uses patented technology to create non-fatiguing muscle activation. And this is what sets it apart from other recovery tools. Muscle activation with Mark Pro facilitates each stage of the body's natural recovery process, similar to active recovery, but without the extra effort and muscular fatigue. Athletes can use it for as long as they need to ensure a more full and quick recovery between training or games. With its portability and ease of use, players can use Mark Pro while traveling between games or while relaxing at home. We even have players that use it all the time on team flights to help them bounce back. We have plenty of pro athletes that use this, and players from every Major League Baseball team use it. Put MarkPro to the test for yourself and take advantage of the great deal they have set up for our listeners through the end of May. Just head to markpro.com and use promo code CRESSI at checkout for 20% off your order. Again, that's markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com and use the promo code CRESSY, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y at checkout to get 20% off your order through the end of May. Today's guest has over 35 years of clinical rehabilitation experience. He began with a Bachelor of Science from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and then moved on to the University of Nebraska Medical Center where he completed a degree in physical therapy. Following graduation from physical therapy school in 1980, he accepted a position as a staff PT at the Omaha Veterans Administration Medical Center. In 1983, he was promoted to Assistant Chief and Clinical Educator. During this time, he also earned a Master's of Public Administration through the University of Nebraska Omaha. In 1984, he accepted a position as Director of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation at St. Elizabeth Community Health Center in Lincoln, Nebraska, where he served in a role until 1997. Then, he began working with Inverse Technology Corporation as Director of Clinical Services. During this time, he was teaching courses across the country on patella dysfunction and protonics, as well as the first postural restoration courses. In 1999, he opened a private practice physical therapy clinic in Lincoln, Nebraska. And in 2000, as a result of his extensive clinical and professional experience, he established the Postural Restoration Institute to explore and explain the science of postural adaptations, asymmetrical patterns, and the influence of polyarticular chains of muscles. In 2011, he co-founded PRI Vision, in Lincoln, Nebraska, with Dr. Heidi Wise. PRI has grown to an entity that's educated thousands of clinicians from a wide variety of facets of physical health and performance. He's developed a strong interest in myokinematic, biomechanical, dental, and visual influences on postural and peripheral adaptation patterns. Please welcome to the show, Ron Kruska. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thanks, Eric. I'm very excited to have you because PRI has been a... A profound impact on my journey um, as, as a training addition professor over the years, and um, you know I think one of the things that there'll be a good place to start on is you know maybe speak to some of the origins of, of PRI. So, so where did it all begin for you? How did you stumble on this?
0: Well, the the concepts behind postural restoration and the institute uh, really, you know, Eric began when I was growing up on a farm, you know, I, when I first realized that humans and animals uh, function around and with this asymmetry in our body, uh, I, uh, I was, I was hooked on it and it was always, it was always an underlying theme of, of biology for me. I'm a nature guy. I'm, I'm, you know, I was raised with 12 other brothers and sisters and we did our own, uh, you know, gardening and we, we did our own butchering and we were really part of nature for, you know, most of my early years of my life. And the thing that, the thing when I'm asked that question, to be truthful, to be very honest about it, it, it did, it wasn't really something that I had to look hard for. It was patterning is all around us. I mean, it's cycles, you know, we have, you know, here in Nebraska, we got four strong uh, seasons. Um, cycling and, and, you know, how it relates to our rhythms of sleep and how it relates to our, our vagal system and how it relates to how we actually function and move and perform uh, was always a natural thing for me. You know, it was so natural. I was confused in terms of really what was I going to do in life with it. You know, I, I made a lot of decisions in my life, good ones and bad ones. And um, to this day, I'm not sure uh, how any of us can move forward if we don't recognize you know the things around us first which i had that ability to do so it started way back then uh you know i went to uh, i went to school here in the university of nebraska and lincoln uh and uh, you know got my biology degree and my life sciences degree and Uh, Then it went into dentistry and, you know, and then left dentistry, went into physical therapy and got my master's in public administration. And I really uh, the one human element behind all that was humanity. I mean, I just love working with people. And and probably the next word would be just organization. You know how things work, evolve and and, you know, what what do they use for frequency? You know, how do we pattern off of it? So those kinds of words are just my natural instinct and finding people that like to talk about that like to resonate around those words uh is something I've always uh I always look forward forward to and look for but that's kind of where it started started back then and I had some good mentorship on the way you know along the way I had a professor at the University of Dental College uh in in my anatomy courses say you know you're not going to make it as a dentist and he goes you know whatever you do you know get closer to the human body and at that time, back in 1978, the only thing that I could think of was physical therapy. And, uh, you know, I, I first thought, Eric, that, that would be the best journey for me to take. And it was, as I look back, but it had its shortcomings, like all, you know, all programs do, but I had it had a lot of strengths. And uh, I, I grew from that. So the Institute really began back in 1998, technically. And, uh that the reasoning for that was because the uh, the reality is when I left Omaha as a, uh, a physical therapist working in a uh, facility called the VA, I took a job in Lincoln, Nebraska, as the director of PTOT and speech, and realized how much uh, that private it wasn't a private practice, but that bit, that practice centered around the word. Sports and orthopedics, uh, and uh, not not to an alarming uh, level, but to a level that really caught my attention. Uh, when I look back, I think Eric probably the, the the joint that gave me my the biggest headaches in my life as a clinician was the knee. I talked about the patellofemoral joint for for years to help people understand that you know really there's more going on here probably than you can think of. Or are, are mindful of when it comes to the the femurs relationship to the patella, and that's where it really kind of got started. If you want to know the truth, uh, I was trying to build a a way to teach, a way to educate and mentor uh, both people around me in the clinic um, as a director, and then also working with students to get them to think about universal systems that drive uh, the way we the way we think, behave, process, sense. And for that matter, pattern ourselves around asymmetry. So that's kind of where it started. It, the institute started when I went into a private practice, and I left the uh, the, uh, uh, the the uh, department of PT and OT and speech uh, therapy at St. and went out on my own and said, you know, while I'm doing this in, in private practice, uh, why don't I just take a stab at teaching some courses? And that's kind of how it all got started. That's fascinating, and, I, and actually, I think it leads
1: into you know, my next question was, so uh, I'll I'll tell you my experience. I I went to a course in in Phoenix, Arizona. And and while I was there, um, I stayed with my buddy, my good buddy, Neil, who's now the head athletic trainer for the Los Angeles Dodgers and a longtime PR advocate. And it just so happened that Neil's guest bedroom was also his library. Um, And he had all these, these posture restoration institute manuals. And it it was interesting. The seminar that we attended was was kind of underwhelming. There was kind of a, a challenging presenter slash translator uh, dynamic and play. Um, so I kind of walked away not feeling awesome about it. But what was interesting is I I asked him, hey, what are these manuals? What, what? I noticed you got a bunch of them. You're all in on it. Um, and he was with the Diamondbacks at the time. And and so I got my own my own private uh, PRI in service at, at, in Neil's kitchen that night, and he had me doing left side lying stability ball intercostal stretch on a stability ball in his room in his living room, and all of this and um, you know, so he turned me on to it, and and so I went to my first course probably three months later in Portland, Maine. Uh, Michael Mullen was there. I think uh, Jen Poulin, who's you now one of the, one of your educators, was. I think she was actually like uh, she was learning under Mike Cantrell and in preparation for it. Donna Bear was my my lab partner, who is a very devout PRI therapist now. And I just distinctly remember uh, the thing that resonated with me the most is when you open the manuals, you see some pretty vivid anatomical diagrams. And I'm, you know, a lot of folks don't know, I I started out as an accounting major, I I was very black and white. So when I became this shoulder elbow baseball guy, one of the things that always resounded me was, was in anatomy. Um, You know, you, you get anatomical variations of, you know, nerve courses. And, you know, some people, you know, might not have, you know, palmaris longus or whatever it is, but for all intents and purposes, anatomy never lies. And, and there was a crucial anatomical basis to a lot of what you did in the context of 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 developing this methodology so i'm curious could you could you delve into that a little bit more because it sold me in 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 the first 10 minutes of the course and i obviously had to learn a lot more about how to manipulate that anatomy how to understand it how to program around it um you know all that so where did it start for you
0: well, you know, Eric the 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 thing the thing that's I just to be really honest with you. Uh, get, by the way, I appreciate what you just did for me and reminding me who Neil is, uh, <laughs> good friend. He's got you know if there are people out there in your journey in life that you you look at at the time that you're you're presently living with them, and you forget how important they really will become. And he was one of those people. He, Neil really did a very good job of guiding me in those formative years on, you know, how to get the PRT uh, established this uh, this certification process. And so when I hear his name, um, it just, he just makes me smile. I think, mm-hmm. Eric, you also talked at one of my symposiums back, mm-hmm. I'll say, was it 2013 or 14? And I think it was because of Neil. Yeah. And, and so these are, these are people I just wanted to shout out to and tell you, we all have them and, and I'm so grateful for them. But you know, when, when, it, when it gets right down to it, Anatomy was always something I really did, really, really did uh, love. I mean, I still do. And, you know, the thing, Eric, that I think probably hit me the hardest was the position of the heart, where it's in the body. I remember when I found out that in the human body, not, not a bovine, not a pig, not a, but in the human body, the heart is on our left upper side. We have a pericardium. The first thing I wanted to know well, how does that, how does that vehicle then? You know, move itself with a a big old pericardium on one side, and there's got to be something on the other side. And when I realized there wasn't, I was like a madman. I just didn't, I, you know. Coming from a, you know, a, back then a tinker toy, we were doing, you know, doing things with, uh, you know, wood and and we were you were welding things, and everything had to be balanced. You know, it had to be balanced, otherwise it just wouldn't run. You know, if you're on a farm, things have got to run in a balanced way. But when I realized that this body we own is not intrinsically uh, built around symmetry, there had to be these forces that offset forces. And that's what really drove me a little bit insane, if you want to know the truth. I'm a little compulsive. And when I found out that the the neurological, respiratory, and circulatory systems are all you know, infiltrating on how we sense sound and how we make noise and how we move our muscles and how we see things at, at that point, Eric, I was like, often to the races. Well, you can't really find, you know, in medicine, you have to specialize with a specific interest that you might be mindful of that you like, you might want to go in pediatrics, you might want to, in, in this medicine, I, I couldn't select one that was all important to me. Well, I didn't know if I should become an optometrist or a dentist but they were all important to me because they all had to work around the system that had a diaphragm on one side that's a lot larger and more strong and more effective than a diaphragm on the other side. Our pelvis knows it, our thorax knows it, our arms and legs know it, and that responsibility of those uh, cavities and and within our body and, and the position that they put us in and the position they were in Really started this whole thing off. Uh, the word balance, the word hemispheric activity. You know, we we have we have neurological um, imprints, or we have this 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 wonderful cranium that has a brain that will tell you what happens when you have a a stroke or a lesion on one side. Well, our bodies are built the same way in terms of they're not operating operating on the same the same way on both sides. And that balance of that asymmetry uh, of our torso and our trunk and the way we move our arms and legs uh, from that point on, I I was highly, highly uh, cued and clued into that need to better understand system organization built around hemispheric activity, neurological and mechanical hemispheric activity, physiological hemispheric activity, uh, pressure hemispheric activity, uh, you know, it goes on and on and on. To this day, I think my favorite topic is, you know, you know, looking at resonance as it relates to the two sides of the body, how our teeth work, our toes work and our fingers work. And that all started with that need you know, that I had internally driven. Um, on a a very early on, uh, very early on in my life on the word two, the body has two sides. So when you take a bio, you know, you graduate with a biology degree, the the bi in biology, the two sides, the study of two sides is really what I was after right away when I got out of uh, high school. Uh, I didn't take a biology class to understand biology. I took a biology class to study the word two and to this day, that's all I really, really do. Interesting,
1: and I think the other, uh, you know, intriguing aspect of this is, you know, a lot of people, when they, when they start to appreciate this system is, I think one of the initial mistakes is that it's, it's just a, a system of assessments, or it's just a system of exercises, and uh, Connor Ryan, who's another, you know, kind of very yeah. devout physical therapy uh, follower, who's, who's based in, in Arizona, works for the Phoenix Coyotes, Connor's a former intern of ours, and I remember him, it's, it's a, it's an avenue through which you can view how injuries occur, you know, how certain conditions are more predictable on you're going to see more sports hernias on the right side. You're going to see, you know, a very predictable pattern in that regard. Maybe speak a little bit to what this predictable pattern of asymmetry is that you're seeing and how it manifests itself in, in, in some of the classic conditions that you may see in, in you know, an orthopedist's office.
0: Well, The, you know, some of the manifestations of this, Eric, that come up to my mind right away, I'll just kind of historically, historically review a few and you, you just tell me when you've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) the, The first one is, you know, I, I think, I think what I tried to do being, um, trying to be insightful and realistic about the way we all process new information. I've always tried to look at my 12 younger brothers and sisters or people that I, uh, I have families all around me uh, families here at work families that are are uh, um, composed of people with similar interest and those who are have dissimilar interests um, when i look at when I look at trying to engage with somebody in an orthopedic family in a world of sports in a world of athletic medicine i look at i try to look at it through their eyes their lens their perspective uh, one of the things that I think we all, you know, all have is we have passion. And whether that passion is on, is, is on how someone, uh, breathes or how someone fights off a virus or how someone moves functionally you have something that draws you together as a family and that community starts looking and writing and putting things in journals that editors have to review and 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 help publish and next thing you know we got a lot of reading material we got a lot of research and when i start looking at the world of orthopedics and i think some of the manifestations that i see that right off the bat i could have had I, and i did i could have an impact on would be things that they are presently reading about, exposed to, going to courses on, uh, getting mentorship from people who have a lot of expertise in it and success. Well, the first thing I thought of was the knee. And I had no idea how big the knee was to, you know, to the orthopedic world back in the 70s, uh, you know, early 70s and early 80s, actually 70s and early 80s. And I, you know the thing Eric, about that it gave me an opportunity to expose people to how things really move, and then how symptomology of one joint, the knee uh whether it was an a c l or cartilage uh you know tear or imbalanced ratios of quad to hamstring strength, whatever it might have been, it gave me an opportunity to show cause and effect and cause and results or it allowed me to show people what positions all about. When you take somebody and put them in a position, symptoms usually will go up or go down depending on what you're trying to do. It was easy for me to show what a, a scapula on the right side would do to a knee on the left. I mean, it was just in my blood, or how an OA joint that would be your base of your skull can influence how you perceive the floor underneath that foot that the knee has that's hurting. So it's there's those relationships were easy for me to to share. As I realized sharing them wasn't a problem but then getting people to fully understand the relationship itself was a bigger problem uh, in other words how does a, an ankle influence the tibial relationship to a femur versus where the patella is on the femur and so i decided i'll start there it'll be simple well eric it was <laughs> it wasn't simple <laughs> to get someone to understand the significance of destabilizing a knee with a with a hamstring versus stabilizing a knee with a quad was like pulling teeth you know, it was just, it was just so difficult to do back then the, you know, the quadricep mechanism was everything. And so it was a good learning lesson for me. It allowed me to become temperate and it allowed me to become patient and it allowed me to really get into a world of orthopedics. You know, I, I came from a world of stroke patients and diabetics, and I did a lot of amputee work and, and neurology, you know, diabetics and people that had really a lot of neurological issues associated with you know, um, hemispheric problems with the with the with the cranium. So when you start looking at the orthopedic world and you tie it to another world, it's not only always easily done if the the people in the room are from a family, a community that see it one way. It was really was really the the manifestations of knee pain uh impingement syndromes shoulder impingement back pain and the back then eric the big one was sacroiliac dysfunction i mean i can name so many authors so many courses i went on si joint they all had their own different ways of looking at it and thinking about it and reasoning it out and for the most part they were all right but they didn't they only were seeing it through a, a, a lens that was related just to that joint they didn't, they didn't, they didn't pull in, you know, what does a temporal mandibular joint do to an SI joint? A lot. They didn't do those kinds of things back then. And so when I look back and I think of those earlier stages, probably the the earliest manifestations of patterning were, uh, the knee, SI joints, low back, shoulder dysfunction. Uh, I know you have a heavy interest in that. And then finally, I'll get into the big one. And that would be, uh, You know the uh, shortness of breath and chronic fatigues that you see with with diaphragmatic issues, and that was really kind of how it all got started.
1: That's that's a cool segue into what I was I was kind of brainstorming. I was, you know, I mentioned anatomy as being one of the big draws for me initially, but I think the other thing that was intriguing with respect to you know my initial PRI coursework and, and certainly you know a lot of the stuff that gets discussed among those who are familiar with the methodology is there was a relationship among the body systems. This was not just a an orthopedic approach. Um, this is not conventional physical therapy, you know, therapeutic exercises alone. It was, you know, I expected to be attending a musculoskeletal conference. And instead, I wound up with an education on everything from the sympathetic nervous system to the respiratory system and, yeah. and just about everything in between. So can you speak to these relationships and how PRI aims to impact this, you know, synergy across these systems to, you know, not just make people feel better, but also, you know, optimize performance?
0: Well, and I I will briefly because it's such a very broad Mm -hmm. uh, concept, but, you know, Eric, I try really hard to get people to understand that those relationships, uh, these uh, system relationships have such an impact on both, on three systems. They interplay with, with and around three systems. That's your autonomic nervous system. Uh, a system that is hard to regulate some, at times. The central nervous system and this thing called the somatic nervous system. What we, what we actually perceive and feel, and that interplay is all cortical. I mean, it's all, you know, it's all cortical activity in the midbrain parts of our of our brain where perception, proprioception. I'll use the word pleasure, uh, physiology, psychology, and position or postural orientation, all interconnect. You know, our cerebellum, our balance center's right there. It's all interconnected. And all of our behavior and these determinants of the behavior that we, you know, of our behavior are are really performance. That's how we perform. And our performance is really not generated by what we like to do or not like to do or uh, by the genetics that we were given or whatever it might be. It's really a combination, and any slight change in any one of those determinants can have a pretty big impact, a major impact, on one of them, or if not all of them. And so that was that's a strong thing we have to always remember. Uh, we are better when we work with more people with different thought processes, scientific backgrounds, disciplinary mindedness. You know, we're we're much better, and so is our body. Our body works the same way. It it's not really a philosophical discussion. It's a scientific one. And so the more we get out of programs wherever our interests are and is, we really need to be we need to be mindful of that. Because as you said, the synergy or lack of is really dependent upon what we're missing or not and how we pull those that that synergy together and it really starts with how you feel about things and what you sense and where are you with the space around you and with the space inside of you and then the big one i always talk about eric is how do you breathe and how do you how do you relate to your body with breathing Uh, that's how we exist now if you if you keep all that in mind it's not that difficult it, it's difficult when you make it that way. But if you really keep that all in mind, that everything is built around the first thing we did in life and the last thing we're going to do in life. And that is take a breath of air in and and let it out. That's that's how we all evolve with movement and function. And every one of those systems I just went over, all those determinants that I just went over are all influenced directly, not philosophically, not theoretically, but scientifically even the chemistry of our blood is is directed by how and and the way we breathe so you know if there's one way we can look at this if we all got out of our programs with a very good clear understanding you know a, a transparent understanding of what really makes us uh, uh, react and act the way we do, it would be a good a really good understanding of the respiratory system and and that's kind of where I think uh, I feel blessed that I had that. I had that uh, before I got into anything I did clinically, I had a strong belief and a strong appreciation for that. And that's largely because of my mother, but that was a strong thing that how do we breathe? How do we, how do we manage, how do we use that respiratory system to get ahead of life? How do we get it? How do, you know, I never smoked in my life. Um, You know, lungs are precious to me. And I treat, them, I treat them as if they are my origin. And so with that in mind, that's one of the reasons why exposure to PRI is, doesn't have to be difficult. If you understand the underlying system in this anatomical machine we have is wired and driven by the breath that we take in and the, and the air we let out.
1: I remember a, a comment from, I can't remember who said it, you know, kind of a as a, as a discussion point related to PRI. And they said, we'd rather breathe well and move like crap than we would move well and breathe like crap. It's, yeah. it's survival instinct. So it's
0: totally, ma- ma-
1: yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's, let's get into the weeds. Um, when you, when you speak, you know, kind of on an anatomical basis to, you know, what are the, what are the positions that people get into from a respiratory standpoint that maybe have these musculoskeletal and, you know, sympathetic nervous system fallouts, what's, what's the classic, you know, patterning that you're seeing that, that, you know, folks who maybe haven't been exposed to PRI I need to appreciate.
0: Well, and, and again, uh, I'm, I'm trying not to go into a, into a deep hole here on all this, but the, the, the most likely thing, if you have never heard of postural restoration, the most likely thing that you'll observe are people that really are not alternating well, their arms don't swing, uh, they look a little overextended. Uh, they look a little stiff and rigid. Uh, their, their ability to uh, make different pitches with their voice uh, and express themselves. Uh, they may be even a little short of breath. But the, the physical manifestations that you might see, Eric, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is that you'll see a shoulder on one side, usually the right, lower than the left you'll see a a center of mass, the body actually will be more centered over a hip that's supportive of them, where the other hip is basically like a a cane or a crutch. The the left leg is usually the leg that you use to uh, position yourself around your, your right leg. And it's not because your right leg and your right arm are your dominant legs and arms, it's because of the way that we are actually physically put together to manage airflow and mass flow. And so you'll see humans usually walk with a little more um, rotation through the right hip than the left hip when they're put weight on it. Uh, They'll find themselves in a position where their left leg is more in front of their right leg when they stop. They'll be leaning over to the left a little bit as their right shoulder's down to balance themselves over their left, excuse me, their right ankle. Uh, Their arm swing on the right side may not be moving back as well as much as it's moving forward, whereas the one on the left is moving back more than it's moving forward because they're trying really hard to get their upper body to, you know, coordinate itself over the floor that they're standing on the right more so than the left. Uh, you'll see things with their mandibles they'll shift to the left usually and you'll see things with their eyes and you'll see you'll see dominance throughout the entire system that usually is more right-minded dominance in other words your left brain's driving it more than your right brain Uh, lots of those things as you study the human uh, the human you know genome if you will if you study it you'll see it it's pretty apparent when you know what to look for. And Eric and in our institute we look for that and when we don't find it through tests and objective measurements we know that we probably have somebody who's probably overutilized something, overcompensated, over over positioned something, over-driven something, and it usually leads into the in these into these words called Uh, dysautonomia or dyskinesis or dystonia or dysfunction in general. It's disharmony is really what it is. And when you get into that situation, you really have a person now that needs some assistance in regulating a pattern that they can't get out of. And, And that's what this institute really tries to do. And that is make people aware of the pattern they're in, make, make people aware that they need to kind of balance that pattern out and make, make sure they understand they will never be a symmetrical human. And no matter how hard you try, you weren't built that way. God didn't put you on this planet to, to be the same on both sides. But how you rest, how you breathe and how you live with it is a gift. And, and balancing that out is fun, provide you know where you need to go to balance it out. You know, and you,
1: uh, you just touched on something that I, that you know, kind of clicked prior to my my next question. Is I, I come from a powerlifting background. I, I lifted at a pretty high level for a long time, and over and over, it's get your air, get your air, get big big yeah. air. Like it's just yelled at you all the time. It's this constant state of get air in to create crazy intra abdominal pressure, whether you're trying to, you know, deadlift, squat, bench press, whatever it may be, wow. and right. and it kind of drives this. This pattern of of heavy extensor tone, right, where you know it, it's you put yourself in this this crazy fight or flight response. But in the parallel world, they never really talk about the value of of full exhalation. And I think you know you've you've introduced these these you know tremendous number of different principles that have you know profound impacts. But I'm I'm not sure any resonated with me more than just this concept of being able to get air out. Um, and I know it's been talked about in the yoga world and all of that. And you know maybe this is a place where you know multiple successful disciplines you know coincide and, and peacefully coexist. But t- talk a little bit about why full exhalation. And doing it correctly are, are so critical to not just you know the success of this philosophy, but also living healthfully.
0: Well, it oh, what you just brought up was a word called synkinesis, and synkinesis, respiratory synkinesis, was described by a guy named Lewitt, and it was it's basically a definition of there of being too close associated with both breathing and motor system movement. So for example, what you just described was a form of respiratory synchinesis. When you hold your breath and do a valsalva maneuver to pick something up, you are matching the activity with a state of respiration. And that would be called respiratory synchinesis. That would be would be fine if you're going to be working on lifting something where you needed valsalva control from the intra-abdominal area and from the thorax itself for that activity i'm not a strength coach i've never been a strength coach and i i we this institute was never you know designed eric to get people to lift better uh really that is that world is a is kind of a cool world when you want to lift and get stronger it would make sense to hold your breath, to you know, take a breath of air in, tighten up so you can lift. But that would be the that would be directly in opposition to what a uh, person running hurdles would need to do, or a sprinter, or a cyclist. Uh, that aerobic activity, that world, and is is what we all live with. It's just getting out of bed in the morning and you know, walk into the bathroom, arm swing, and you know, appendage movement requires respiratory non synchinesis where you can breathe in and out anytime your heart desires, regardless if your head's rotated one way or your arms are, you know, being tendularly swung at a certain time or not. Uh, so the, the issue is, can you, can you get that respiratory alternation, air in and air out, as you twist and turn your body, because as you twist and turn your body, the thorax and abdominum abdomen is going to change position. But if your thorax and abdomen is in a, in a, in a position of, 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 Ongoing stature, which means if you took a breath of air in and both the ribs would flare out and you fill up your chest with air and you held it there, when you move your arms and you didn't have enough motion through the thorax and the abdominal region, now you're really walking with a respiratory synkinesis. In other words, you're 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 moving by directing or not directing air in and out of your body. Some animals like cheetahs, cheetahs, when they run, they'll take a breath air in and push it out to get faster. But when humans walk, we're not on all fours, we're on twos, on two legs. And we have to have the ability to move our air in and out of our body, totally independent of our arm and leg and our trunk movement. And so there's the, there's the thing, Eric, that I think, quite honestly, I think really a lot of trainers and coaches and strength people don't really fully appreciate. We... We, you know, we, this science that we uh, look at in this institute isn't really directed on how to lift better, how to strength better. It's directed on how to move without effort. That's really what it's all about. Uh, we like to get people in states where they can rest comfortably. Airways stay open. Necks stay neutral. That doesn't mean they're going to stay neutral when you start moving and running or when you play basketball. But when you stop and you have two feet under you, you should resonate back and forth. Your brain depends on that residency and your spine depends on that, frequencies, that frequency that's necessary for rest. We have people in this country, in this world that we're in, Eric, that don't know how to rest. Mm-hmm. They're they're really carrying their body to bed in a respiratory synchinetic way. They're hold, they're taking a breath of air in. Their backs become extended. Their their neurological activity wants sympathetic drive for that extension, and they don't know how to shut it off. They don't know how to downregulate that activity. So it's a great topic to talk about because it really does distinguish what we do from you know other people out there in other programs uh we you know we don't look at DNS FMT FMS FMT FRC and you know PRT and all these acronyms from all these different movement programs I don't I don't I really don't even want to compare myself to them they're wonderful programs but we're not looking at the same thing the same way you know our nails are different to our hammers. Our hammers are not trying to hit a nail. Our hammers are trying to let the nail, you know, resonate without being hit. And so we, we're we looking at things a little differently. And, and it doesn't mean it's, it's wrong or right to do what you do when you hold your breath to lift or when you extend your back or whatever you might do with an anterior tilt or a posterior tilt. Those all make reasonable sense for the situation you're in. It's just not how we carry ourselves around when we do things aerobically or when we move our bodies in forward local movement. Or so we're I, looking for a movement. I
1: love that point. And Ken Crenshaw with the Diamondbacks, who's a who's probably one of the initial PRI folks in baseball. I remember Ken using the term playing for the tie. And, and that's, you know, we're we're on a baseball podcast, and you really think about it. This is an inherently asymmetrical sport. You know, you'll have people where baseball may bring them out of their natural asymmetries. And we have yeah. folks where, you know, baseball brings them into their, their existing asymmetries and then throws eccentric stress and tissue shortening and all of these. You know, fundamentally problematic things, PRI can be an avenue through which you play for the top of these folks. You know, it might not f- fix you chronically, but in the transient state, it, it allows you to bounce back, recover, and and you know, be quote unquote neutral prior to your next exposure. So mm-hmm. I guess that maybe leads to my next question: is is how does where do you see PRI fit with strength training programs? Like folks are always intrigued, you know, they they know that I'm a, a big supporter of what you do and you know, we certainly see people that take it really, really far where, um, you know, it heavily impacts, you know, how they coach certain exercises and for us. And I always, I always say it's, it's probably two to 3% of our population, but it's a profound two to 3% of what we do, meaning it's, it's a couple exercise on the beginning of a session. It's maybe the way that we coach some of the exercises that we've done for the last 15 years. It may be how we position our, our feet as we do a, a half kneeling baseball or, or something like that. Where do you see pri integrating ideally with with strength training is it do we use it in the warm to get to neutral and then train in neutral and hope that it sticks or do you think that our programs need to be inherently imbalanced to address our you know both our structural and our functional
0: asymmetries well i i, I it's a fair question and honestly uh, i i think if i were just to be keep it very basic i think it i think it 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 exists in a very good way if we think about what I just said regarding the human body and how you can integrate it in a strength and conditioning world, whether it be in a gym or, you know, a, a, a gymnasium or a, a workout site where you're lifting. The thing that comes to my mind right away is is just this thing called sensory processing. You know, knowing knowing that you have Uh, we all have to do things like adjust ourselves, tune in, reposition, re-regulate, and, you know, uh, empower ourselves neurologically through respiratory activity and placement. So how we position ourselves, being mindful that we have two legs under us, and when you put that bar in your hand or you put weight in your hand or a column or, you know, a, Uh, you know uh, a band in your hand or a cable in one hand that that hand that's attached to that column and that weight and that cable isn't moving at without the body and the other extremities offsetting that movement so we don't lift with two hands we lift with four appendages we don't lift with uh you know a set of feet we lift we lift with a a complete system and so, being mindful that we are Eric built around some endurance limitations based on that asymmetry of our body is really kind of a powerful thing to consider. You can get so much more out of lifting a little less but controlling it a little better than you would if you lifted more without control and so I always remind people when I work with the I work with a lot of athletes, but you know you know. You know, my dad was an athlete, you know, just going to the mailbox to get his mail. I mean, you have to move. And so how you look at the sequence of movement in the weight room or in the training room by beginning to really, you know, be mindful Of what's going on across the entire system where is the support really being generated at it may be going through your hip on the right side more than the left because the machine you're on but that right hip would do a lot less if you were more mindful of what to integrate it with you know what what should you be aware of with your peripheral sense of view what should you be aware of what you're doing with your tongue and your mandible? What should you be doing with, with aware with your the side of your trunk when you bend or lean or list? These are all things that you can really you know. And I know a lot of a lot of those strength coaches that I've taken PRI classes are are really tuned into that. How do I get a position better established to enable someone to do something with a little more freedom to move by making sure that I give them more exposure to the sense that they can move they can move better with. The word is really Eric. The word is inhibition. You know, we we don't facilitate strength. We inhibit the activity that facilitates that strength. So if we're facilitating, 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 and facilitating, then more than likely we're doing things, lifting and empowering things under a lot of abnormal, uh, ab- abnormal and unnecessary demand placed on our body. The more we lift smartly, the more we're sensory process uh minded the better we're going to be in in carrying that activity with us once we get done with that process you said it very well you know people people when it's you want to be able to walk away and 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 carry some of that neurological processing with you and to do that you have to you have to pull in or push with i'll use those two words pull or push with As much sense sensory processing you can to maintain the desired state neurologically, physiologically, and physically that you want when you walk away from that activity. Effort is built off of inhibition, effort's not built off of you know facilitation or disinhibition. And so, the more you want to do with the less that you want to do it with requires. These concepts and the the big one that I think is really important for any of the youth that's listening to this is to be mindful that when you do something, you have four, four extremities to work. Use all four, even if you don't think you're using the other two, you are just be mindful of that. Are you bending your knee correctly? Are you keeping your back relaxed? Are you positioned, or is your center of mass directly between both of your hips and legs? Is one turned out? Is one turned in? Are you twisted? How do you see what's around you? What makes you feel better in terms of sense of of, of, of what you hear and what you feel in terms of what I call this undulating movement. Are you feeling the floor vibrate? Do you have shoes on that are over, uh, over supportive or under supportive? So I'm just throwing a lot out there, Eric, but those are the kinds of things I think that really we all need to be mindful of when we try to strengthen ourselves. I think it's, I think it's
1: great. I, and I've been an advocate for a long time of, you know, particularly when we're talking about young athletes, you know, in this era of early sports specialization is, you know, our, our job is to create a rich proprioceptive environment for kids to give them you know, strategies to adjust to life's unpredictability. And you just, I mean, you just nailed it by talking about, you know, four limbs, you know, you, you can't just have somebody lay on their back and, and bench press with two feet on the floor and expect to just, you know, create this magically adaptive athlete. But, um, I think what was a really uh, interesting side of that is, you know, you, you talked about this concept of, of, of inhibition to leading to strength and power improvements. And if we really look at the research on how people get stronger or more powerful, we know, yes. The agonists get stronger, right? So, you know, if you're trying to extend your elbow forcefully, yes, your triceps are 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 you know certainly working hard to do so. But what a lot of people overlook is that a big part of, of those gains is also that the reduction in, in antagonist activation um, is a vitally important part. And, and what we know is that when a joint is inherently out of alignment your antagonists are going to be firing on all cylinders just because they're trying to create a protective, you know, element to that. You're, you're, you're effectively slowing down the movements, but I think even building on that is, you know, when you're, when you're strength training, when you're out of alignment, you're creating instability, right? Your, your posterior cuff can fire all at once as you internally rotate your shoulder. But at the end of the day, you've got some glenohumeral ligaments that over the course of time will get looser and looser. And I, I think that's such a vitally important point when we talk about, using the warm-up periods to find an, an element of neutrality so that A, you can reduce antagonist activation and, and B, you can not have to rely on these passive strengths restraints to, to effectively protect the joint from hurting itself.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I I totally agree with you. And and I think the um uh, I have such a, uh, I have a more of a concern for those people out there who forget about Uh, coexistence of things, you know, I mean, like uh, you said, being mindful that you've got four extremities. The thing that, uh, the thing that I think we also forget, Eric, is when you start talking about agonistic and antagonistic uh, um, effort muscle, uh, whether it's an alpha, gamma, bias system, we all are biased with more antagonistic activity. Uh, on our left than our right. We're agonistic people on the right. We, we, we have antagonistic muscle to the muscle on our right, but we have definitely more antagonistic muscle, in, in, in if you will, conceptually on our left. Scientifically, the research will tell you, you know, our, our biggest agonistic and antagonistic activity is what's going on between the two sides of our body. So when our right side of our body works, it's like having an, an agonist and, a, and a, a, let's say a, a, a humeral bone, an mm-hmm. arm bone. You have biceps on one side, triceps on the other. I often teach um, youth this. I say, now think about this. If we have one muscle on one side of the bo- arm bone, flex the elbow, and the other one extends the elbow, they work against each other. But they coexist. Mm-hmm. Now, we have the same thing in our spine. We have a spine and right between our two legs and our two arms. We have a division and our brain knows it. Our ribs know it. Our, our rear knows it. Our legs and arms know it. There's a division on one side of our body. We like to extend more on the other side of our body. We like to flex more. And that, that would be like flexing on the right, extend, extending on the left or flexing on the left, extending on the right. When you s- Look at the body and the way it's built. We all like to stand more on our right side. Now, when I say stand, I'm talking about we like to position and posture ourselves over our right floor, which means that our right side likes to hold us up more than our left side. So if our right side likes to hold us up more than our right side, whether it's a bicep or a hamstring, or excuse me, whether it's a bicep or a tricep. It's activating more than the other side, which means the other side is kind of like a slave. It's just helping you stay there. It's, it's antagonistic activity is minimized by the dominance of the agonistic activity. And so if you compare our bodies to actual muscles that agonistically, antagonistically work, that's what we do in this institute. We're trying to get that left agonistic right side of your brain powered up. Because the left side likes to run things, (laughs) including language Mm -hmm. and some logic. So to get that right brain to get that left side to fire up, we've got to decrease that agonistic drive on the right side by making it more antagonistic. You know, by inhibiting it more. And so that's what this institute does. We look at the 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 respiratory system that allows us to do that, allows us to balance ourselves out, so we can alternate from side to side. Otherwise. All the things we learn in school about anatomy and biology and human performance, we we assume that that is, is existing on a body that has two sides that are very similar in terms of coexistence, and that's not how our bodies were put together. So I just took it to a different level. Did you see I, what I did there, Eric?
1: I think it's great, and you know, it leads me to the the next point is. I mean, I'm sure you recognize it, right? Some of the names are, they're long and elaborate, right? You, you see people blowing up balloons, right? We,
0: you know,
1: and and some of the stuff is, you know, I'm sure by your own, you know, admission is, is complex. And it has to be because we are not, you know, the the human body is very complex in the interrelationships among systems. And in the fact that the anatomy is not as we perceived it in a lot of these diagrams that we learned in school. Um, And so I'm curious, you know what that mean? Where do you think PRI has been the most misunderstood. When someone gets exposed to it and they immediately, you know, take, go in the other direction because it's too complex or whatever it is. Where do you think, um, you know, folks have have just not given it the the benefit of the doubt for whatever
0: reason? You know, it, it's it's really tough for me to answer that, Eric. And I I I thought of, I think about it a lot. I think about you know anything in life that you have to work hard at, uh, you have to work hard at. In other words, if you have to work hard at understanding someone's position on a topic, and you know it's a scientific topic, the one thing that I do think maybe I could answer in this way: um, exploitation uh, to to a point of no return. Someone who just uh, says, "You know, I'm, I'm, I I can do this with PRI, but I can't go any further." Mm -hmm. You know, this human nature. I uh, philosophically speaking, I don't believe studying or observing and considering human asymmetry or neural lateral function is really a theory. It's, you know, it's a study of science. So applying this in a scientific way across many different fields of science does not make it philosophical either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I suppose, you know, people when they, they consider PRI a, a, a philosophical thought, it, it's, mm-hmm. it becomes a philosophical thought. But the outcomes received by you know, our algorithms, our tests, our techniques, et cetera, are teachable, explainable, repeatable, and they're scientifically based. So, not a program or institute, there, there's, it's not a program or institute that I built off of theory uh, or opinion or philosophy. So, it, it, it's a mystery for a lot of people because we didn't get it in school, Eric. We, didn't, mm-hmm. we weren't taught that the body is asymmetrical in a mm-hmm. functional performance class, we didn't get that. So, it's when you compare it to strengthening and releasing tissues and stretching programs to change purpose and reasoning outcomes, it can become very confusing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why we work so hard, Eric, to clarify and teach, explain people on why we do the things we do. Because if you start adding this test to another test, now it's not scientific. There is no research on that. So we try really, we try really hard to keep these tests clean and the techniques mm-hmm. clean. Otherwise, you have what we call overutilization, and then overutilization results in very poorly predictable and poorly uh, stated and seen outcomes. So the science behind our asymmetry, the thing that I probably think that is 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 difficult for for most people to grasp, is that is. Does asymmetry have that big of an impact on outcomes? And it does. And that's a real difficult thing. If we all truly believe that, Eric, if we all believe that we were built asymmetrical, we would study it more. We would look at you know, the basal ganglia more. We would look at the way our fingers on the right side work versus the fingers on the left side. And by the way, they do work differently in science. And how our feet work the floor differently than the feet on the left side. And by the way, they do work differently in science. And so we would study that more. And and we didn't, we once we get our degrees, once we get our get out there and we're successful, what we do, to go back and relook at this and the light that I'm sharing with you this afternoon is difficult for a lot of for a lot of us, including me, because I'm still learning. I, I learn something new every week about asymmetry and what I would call lateralization. So I it's a it's challenging because it's not it's a nuance, it's a novel way. I, you know, I often think, Eric, think of the 23rd, 24th century, you know, millennial millennials out there. They're going to look at what we're doing back in the 19th and 20th century and 21st century, and they're going to say, wow, those were the growing painful years. I mean, they were still talking about patellofemoral joints. And so it, it, it's, it's, it's evolving. I'm, I like to think we're, we're, we're moving in directions that are multidisciplinary minded. Which means they're less challenging. If you pick one of them as a discipline, it's going to be challenging. So, if you're an orthopedic person, it's going to be challenging. If you're a neurological patient, it's going to be challenging. If you're, a, you have to put it together and look at the entire system, and then it isn't as challenging. Absolutely. Now, I guess by the
1: other end of the spectrum, you know, with every philosophy, sometimes people take things too far and become zealots. So I've had people who have read my articles and say, Cressy doesn't believe in overhead pressing for anybody. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of different kinds of way to overhead press. And there's a lot of different people out there who have unique structural adaptations and functional adaptations. So it's not necessarily that simple. I'm I'm sure you've seen people, you know, who have been to courses or, you know, uh, read your stuff or watch videos on YouTube from afar and and you know maybe they've become zealots or they've taken it in the wrong direction yeah. where where do you I guess from afar get frustrated where has it been overutilized or you know even misutilized by some of the practitioners that that have followed the science
0: I think it, it was I think it 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 follows up on the discussion I just had with you I think when it's thrown the thing that there isn't just one area Eric but I do understand your question mm-hmm. and I I, I, I do understand the person, the person asking it, too. Uh, Eric, it's frustrating when you see those things happen. But in my, in my mind, with PRI, the thing that probably makes me most frustrated is when I see it uh, uh, compared to other strengthening programs or other stretching programs or a myofascial program. Do you follow me, Eric? That's it right. wasn't designed for that. It, our bodies weren't just designed for that. They're all interrelated, obviously, and you know some people will put a technique in PRI right along with a myofascial release technique, and I totally understand why they're doing it, or a strengthening program technique of someone else's. And I totally understand why, but if you but if you look at the two, maybe the two techniques, they're completely designed for different reasons, for different um, thought processes, and for different processing of information, sensory information when it gets, when that, it kind of waters it down. Do you know what I mean, Eric? It takes Absolutely. it, and puts it into a format where now it looks like different Kool-Aid. Not that yeah. it should have ever been Kool-Aid. It should have been the sugar and the water and the, you know, the the color agent. It, it has ingredients. And when those ingredients get mixed around, then it's misconstrued. And that happens, as you said, it happens. It just, that's not unique to PRI. It happens in other programs as well. So the thing that bothers me the most is, We forget about that. This body of ours wants fluidity. It wants flexibility. It wants flow. Those three Fs. And to get that, that comes with you know what are you doing with your breath? How do you operate operatively? Lift with your breath. How do you sleep with your breath? How do you regulate with your breath? How do you turn things off with your breath? How do you stretch with your breath? How do you strengthen with your breath? And the only reason I'm bringing that breath up because you know that's our the the primary basis for PRI is diaphragmatic a- imbalance and asymmetry. We are, you know, we have a huge different cavity in our body with a bigger diaphragm and a smaller diaphragm and a bigger chest wall and a smaller chest wall. So when it gets lumped in with everything else, Eric, yeah, it does get a little frustrating. But you know what? I smile. I'm just I'm just glad they're thinking about it.
1: <laughs> I know it's good, good publicity regardless. But I I, I think it also you know, to some degree it underappreciates something that you do actually a really good job in, in courses of, of outlining is this is not meant to take the place of massage therapy. It's not meant okay. to take the place of, you know, a lot of conventional physical therapy initiatives. If anything, it's meant to be very complimentary in the sense that doing this correctly might reduce the amount of time you need to spend working on a subclavius or a pec minor or some yeah. of those things I, i've always appreciated that you and your instructors have, have done a very good job of of highlighting the you know the yeah. inter, i mean yeah. interdisciplinary integration is an actual course you put on there's a reason for that
0: correct <laughs> well and I, I just gotta tell you thank you eric that, that was really well said and that makes me smile thank you very much for pointing that <laughs> out because we've got some great instructors, great students, a lot of certified people in the world right now. And, and, and what you just said would make all of them very happy. What you just said right there. It's, well, it's so true. But, it, but it
1: is true. That's the most important thing. And, you know, so actually maybe in that vein um, actually, uh, you know, talking with, with Jen and Chris pool. during a course, not too long ago, you know, they had some comments on how PRI has evolved over the years since, you know, since I initially took it, you know, really ten years ago um so how, how in your mind has the has the science and practice of the posturation Inst- restoration institute you know evolved over the last ten years and and also where do you see things headed in the years ahead what do you what keeps you up at night as you think about it
0: well again it's it's just wonderful you even asked the question and it gave me an opportunity just to comment on it. One is you know, when always when I started this institute you know, over 20 years ago, the thing that I really want to do is get some people in some chairs just to listen or better yet engage with would be the word. So, you know, we really had, to, I really had to hit home with things like uh, orthopedic management, you know, and and good, you know, things like origins and insertions of muscles and how do muscles work in patterns? You know, so we, we decide, we define what a pattern is and polyarticular muscles, muscles that go from one side where another muscle starts or ends. Uh, got into that just basic concepts of what we would call synergistic movement and then once we got into that over the years we with our three primary courses on pelvis and how we breathe postural respiration and the mild kin course on really the function behind you know that what our spine sits on called the sacrum and the pelvis once we get through that we can now move into directions like forward locomotor movement, impingement, and instability discussions, interdisciplinary mindedness discussions. We're now in our tertiary courses, which are courses that are definitely where I wanted to start this institute, and that would be the neurology behind neurology behind biasness, biased biological behavior, uh, the bees, the biased biologic behaviors. And to look at hemispheric activity, you have to have a good appreciation of a skeletal format to apply it to with muscle. And that's what those early years in this institute really provided us, you know, structure that we could go to now and look at Universally with other denominations of disciplinary medicine and neurology, and that would include our friends in the dental community, chiropractic community, and the fascial community, the my the people, and they're they're wonderful people. And I feel like I'm all of those. I, my background is really osteopathic. So when I look at that, when I look at that, and I think about the future and where we're at today, we're actually now Eric having interest in people wanting to go to courses that are now in, that are very cortical driven functionally cortical driven uh, you know i 'm giving courses to uh, to people interested in the neck and its relationship to the to the oral cavity and the pharyngeal cavities uh, our nasal our autonomic activity our nitrous oxide activity. Our 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 brain, you know, we're we're giving this course on Parkinson's and basal ganglia in a few months at our symposium, our spring symposium, and the things that I'm really excited about this year is our voice, uh, you know, our voice resonance course that's going to be offered in October. So we're really getting into what we would call, you know, other areas of, of of discipline that has an impact on posture, an impact on respiration, and an impact on strength and and training. And so that's really where the fun's at, (laughs) because at that point, you can sit in that chair and be around a community or a family and all appreciate this, this, this understanding of how this asymmetry is really processed out before you even took the first course. And you'll see the relationships of things that maybe to this day you have not been successful in one clinically assessing or clinically treating, but two in getting people's symptomology to become reduced. So now you're gonna be better prepared to figure out does that person need a splint for their for their mouth to sleep at night or for their mouth to turn their head correctly with, or even to talk with, or does that person need some a speech a speech therapist or a voice? Instructor. So it just leads into what I would call, you know, the worlds around us, the people in our backyard and our communities that we can go to and get so much help from. You know, Eric, the number one person out there that we can go to right now and get help from doesn't have to be necessarily another strength coach or trainer, but it, it could be your dentist. It could be a shoe salesman. Uh, Someone who people who understand, you know, what feet and teeth, for example, or eyes do to the way you perform. And that's what I think this institute is really going to do in the future. It's going to be a really tight knitted scientific community of people working together to manage this dysfunctional state humans get themselves into by becoming one minded, one sided, or uni uh, threatened, like you said earlier. So that's that's not what we're supposed to be doing in this world we're in, but I, that, thank you for giving me the opportunity to go over that. I love that, and, and kind of maybe starting to wrap things up. Um, so when I
1: when I first took P.R.I., I took myokinematic restoration first, which is I think traditionally the course that most folks start with, and and I struggled with. It. I, I I understood the principles, and I I fell in love with, like I said, the anatomical basis, the interaction across symptoms, or excuse me, across systems, and I went back and I. I kind of floundered for the first couple months and I went back to postural respiration and all of a sudden I had my, my face palm aha moment because I realized I just hadn't been, I hadn't been stacking a torso on top of the hips I was learning about. Right. I I just didn't realize how critically important it was to control for rib positioning and and all that stuff. And, you know, I went back after that and, you know, and I realized in hindsight that was that was a lot of my upper extremity bias um, is that I, I probably needed to look a little bit further up the chain before I went you know further down. Um, and it would have maybe stuck for me a little bit better. And I'm not sure if I'm unique in that, but I'm, I am curious, what's the best roadmap in your mind for PRI? What courses should folks begin with? where would you recommend they go from there and then you know is, is there a place where it's it's appropriate to stop if you're a strength and conditioning coach or an athletic trainer who you know maybe doesn't um you know know how far down the rabbit hole is is appropriate to go
0: i th- i think any one of those courses that you just mentioned eric i i again i want to just commend you because you know you go way back i mean you you've you've looked at the you've looked at this in a You've always had an open mind for these kinds of activities. I'll leave it at that. And the fact that you said the aha moment, uh, you know, you're a mentor to a lot of listeners out there. And uh, your aha moment was the uh, postural respiration course, the postural restoration course. Uh, That might be... uh, you know that might be the course that you know uh, most of your listeners would think about going to because you, your your field of interest is similar to probably theirs. Mm-hmm. It's a great course. It's a good course f- from the standpoint of introducing things that we talked about this afternoon on this podcast. Now, if you're interested in floor dynamics and ground dynamics and and hip dynamics and how we carry ourselves. With asymmetry, with groups of muscles that turn us and rotate us and lift us, that would be the MyoKin course, and that's a wonderful course to go to, especially if you're really interested more in the uh, the the athlete that's on the ground, not in the water, but on the ground. Uh, you know, basketball players or or runners. I, I mean, I can't, I cannot help but think you're going to get a lot out of that that mild course and you know what's interesting eric these courses really haven't changed over the last 25 years the concepts are the same the research out there we're always trying to update but the scientific application principles are the same you know the body doesn't change just because an institute's growing the, the last thing i want to say if for those of you who are interested in pressure if you're interested in intra-abdominal pressure and thoracic pressure, take the pelvis course because our pelvis really is the course that allows us to start thinking about inlets and outlets of the of the thorax and inlets and outlets of a pelvis and flow, if you will, of pressure. And we gotta we work around pressure. And if there's one thing that probably we we aren't mindful enough of is that there's pressure around us. But that pressure around us is always managed by the pressure we produce in us. And that would be a, a wonderful course to go to because it really ties in both myocan principles with postural respiration principles. So that's another good primary course to consider taking. All three, I can almost promise you, Eric, if you take one, you're going to want to take the other two. And and I would probably encourage you to you know just uh, go to our website, read about them. You know, go to the courses, you know, read a little bit about what's offered by uh, spending two days with an instructor and you'll, you'll leave, I think uh, you'll leave a knowing right away where your interest may lie.
1: That's awesome. So folks can learn more about you at uh, posturerestoration.com. Also a good presence on Twitter, both you at Ron Ruska, as well as post rest in I N S T um, on Twitter. They have a good Instagram as well. And, and and a solid YouTube page as well, where there's, there's quite a few exercises that are. You know, not just outlined how you coach them, but also the rationale for why they're included. So, um, Ron, can't thank you enough for taking the time. This was um, right. an awesome uh, history of the methodology, but also, you know, you know, for lack of a better term, diving into the weeds that you know I think are, is critically important to really appreciating it yeah, and, and how to make it work for you. If um, there's one thing I can I can tell folks listening, it, it's that actually, it's two things. First off, this has been you know very impactful for me in the way that I I view movement, uh, the way I view how injuries occur. But I think just importantly, the thing I want to emphasize is don't give up on it. It's it's not easy up front, but it is is critically helpful um, to what we do on a daily basis. So you have to be willing to set aside the time to appreciate the anatomy, appreciate the the finer selfies of how it's coached, and it, it can be a game changer for you. So, um, Ron, thanks so much for taking the time.
0: And Eric, thank you for your support, your kindness, and uh, your, your, your uh, request for this podcast. I enjoyed it. This was a blast. We'll uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions. For future guests and questions, just email elitebaseballpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.